Michael Heyman and you're listening to Changemakers in association with the University of London. In this special series with global leaders, writers and campaigners, we'll be reflecting on more than a year of challenge and change as we ask the question, how has COVID changed us? Joining me today is the Chief Executive of the British Library, Roly Keating. It may have items dating back 4,000 years, but in almost a decade under Roly's leadership, the British Library has become not just a physical but a digital institution. Looking forward to this century and indeed the next. Described during his time at the BBC as one of its greatest cultural heavyweights, today's guest is someone who's taken the helm at some of our most storied institutions and seems to have asked the question, how can we make them better for a new generation? Remy, welcome to Changemakers. Thank you for having me. It's great to be part of this conversation. The world has never been changing more, so this is a perfect time to uh, to talk about it. Oh, I, I, I totally agree. I mean, do you think that that is a fair summation about actually getting prepared for the for the next generation? It seems to be a common theme when when I read some of the sort of things that you've said and written about in terms of actually future focused. I mean, my background was was in broadcasting before I came into the library world. And I think a few people very politely and nicely would express surprise when I made the move about 10 years ago. But for me, it felt totally natural, by the way, moving from one fantastic British institution devoted to telling stories about everything for everyone to another, really. I mean, so, but really, when you come deep down to purpose and values, very, very kindred, very close, some technical differences, but nonetheless, a lot of the the heart and soul felt very common, both grappling with digital positively and from a point of view of, of challenge, both BBC and British Library driven by a kind of curiosity about the world. And maybe when you talk about future facing it's fostering curiosity or indulging sometimes my own curiosity that's been a constant uh, constant thread. But when you talk about the future, to be honest, even more than, than my previous part of life, I've said really from the moment I stepped into this sector that almost no part of the cultural sector is more preoccupied with thinking about not just the immediate future, but the very, very long-term future. I mean, at the BL, we're trying to think about not just what will we preserve, but what will people need mm. in generations long beyond ourselves? And that's always <clears throat> been somewhere in my mind. But at, at the British Library, that canvas is right in front of us. Well, I mean, we'll obviously talk about that from the perspective of, of COVID in, in, in a moment. Mm. But in, in just it's interesting when you talked about the sort of the cultural similarities between the BBC and the British Library. I mean, is that idea of, you know, speaking peace unto nations, I mean, is, is that idea of the, the peaceful pursuit, is, is, that, is that what you meant by that in terms of the, the, the roles of both? Well, I think certainly there is an important thread to unpack there, and probably it's more important now than ever. When we, we, we set about restating what the library is for, its mission, purposes, values, and we, we talked about making our intellectual heritage accessible to everyone for research and inspiration and enjoyment. And one of the things we were explicit about was our international role, our international purpose. And you, you've done this, I'm sure, Michael, you, you worry away about language when you're, you're trying to find simple statements. So we, in the end, we simply said something simple, if I get it right, we work with partners around the world to advance knowledge and mutual understanding. Mm which maybe it's a little bit motherhood and apple pie, but actually these are real words that we've thought about very deeply and have conditioned our behaviour. Well, I mean, uh, I mean and, and actually, so. I think they, they really do resonate because I think the idea of, of mutual understanding and for a lot of people listening in, they'll say, well, actually, we're a long way from that. I mean, in terms of the progress you can make to kind of bring 
people to sort of, I guess, at the very least, respect each other's views and opinions and, and actually foster an environment of, of understanding. Is, is, there a, is there a formula you, you, you've come upon, do you think, or, or, or is, it a, is, it, is it just a long-term goal? I don't think there's ever a simple formula with something like that, because as you say, it, 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 if it was easy, then the world would be a very different place. But from a British Library perspective, uh, and in fact, from a library perspective generally, and I think that, that if there are truths about this institution, there are probably truths about the sector more widely and, and globally. First of all, one of the things that, that really struck me moving into the library space was just how based on, on common values and collaboration it is. It's by far the most almost obsessively interconnected collaborative profession. Librarians really barely recognise international boundaries in some way. And I think that's because there's something very dedicated about it. You're protecting knowledge, you're making it accessible to people. And you are, I think, yes, creating country by country, community by community, village by village, school by school, university by university, one safe space for knowledge to be found and discovered and unpacked that is respectful of what's going on with commerce, or politics or religion, but somehow outside of it or inside of it, if you see what I mean, where people mm. can come together equally and ask any question, explore any idea, and know that the values of that protected space will privilege that and make it possible. And when things are quiet, that's great and that's easy and we've, we take it for granted and we probably do have a tendency to take, for instance, local libraries and other libraries for granted. But actually, it, it, it's part of civilizational value to work hard to protect those places and spaces because as we know, one of the downsides of, of this very interconnected age we live in is that, that actually the discovery of knowledge is not uncontested or easy to do. Mm. And libraries are one of the protectors here. Well, and, and actually, while you were speaking, I was thinking, because I think it was 73 when, when the British Library was, was, mm. was opened. And I mean, I think to this day, it's, it's always had impact. I mean, it, it's got, I think, they, I think they call it in American real estate, curbside appeal. I mean, you go, you go through and there is a sense that you've arrived somewhere special. It's the kind of, I, I think it's one of those buildings that somehow got some of that, almost like that New York feel of something, something big, a big idea. And it got me thinking, actually, if you think about sort of the Pompidou Centre or, or even something like the Concord uh, Ideal, that actually that period of, of the kind of 60s into that early 70s decade, I guess, was, was a time when actually some great statement projects were made. I mean, do, do you think there's something to learn, not only from the work of today, but I guess from the, the genesis of, of, of the British Library as, as a kind of cultural icon for the UK and beyond? Oh, definitely, yeah. And I think you're right to allude to that phase, that era, and these come in phases, you know, in, in nations, but there was undoubtedly a post-war period of institutional, institution building that took place in some cases, literally, but I think the UK emerged with and, and took stock of what it didn't have. It didn't have a national theatre. It didn't have things it didn't know it could have, like an open university, an arts council in its current form, all sorts of things we owe, actually, to that generation. And yes, a standalone National Library was one of them. There was the, the Library of the British Museum, various other institutions. And I mean, perhaps for, for listeners, who, 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 it's not a totally familiar history, this, because people, I think, if they think about the library institutionally, as opposed to maybe it's building in London, they just automatically assume 
those centuries old roots, the roots into mm -hmm. the British Museum collection, quite rightly, Karl Marx in the 19th century and, and so on. But actually in its current form, it's absolutely a product of a sort of combination of idealism, the white heat of technology, economic rebirth, a pretty bold stitching together of very, very different collections and institutions. I think that's a good which, word for it, bold. Of, of yeah. which the British Library, British Museum mm. Library was, was only one. And I mean, you, you very kindly mentioned the wonderful London building, and it is great. And by the way, it didn't actually open its doors in its current form until, 19, until the late 1990s, about 1998 officially. So it took a long time to get there. But that is only part of the story. And I mean, as, as listeners in the north of England will know, we're a huge institution in Yorkshire as well. Two thirds of the national collection by physical volume is based there. Our digital teams are there. All the ingest and cataloging is there. And in fact, in terms of that digital physical mix, even though digital is vital, we are even now in very active talks in Yorkshire about trying to create a proper physical public space in, mm. in the middle of Leeds. So that, that sense of um, institution building is still very real for us. And because we're quite young compared with others, children of, you know, a child of the 70s, a child in a sense of that digital age, we're not done yet. We're still forging that identity. Mm. And, I, and I think that's, that's an important part to, I think, the kind of the youth of the overall of the experience. In, and I guess, you know, the, the, when you look at some of the wider range of UK institutions that, you know, came out of the Victorian era, I think the kind of, you know, UK wide sort of nature of it, we were talking off air. I'm, I'm from Sheffield originally, you know, there's a, there's a great IP centre for the British Library. You know, there's a, this is a big project. Let's talk about the big question, I guess, COVID in terms of how does this, challenge and change an institution like the British Library in general? And how does it challenge its chief executive? Oh, I mean, it, it, it challenged all of us on every level. And, and me personally, just as a leadership challenge more than anything I'd encountered in my life before. And it was a, a, a series of pretty tough, as an institution, and as an organisation, as a staff community, first of all, it did all sorts of contradictory things. It, it, it broke us apart because we had to shut down the buildings and go to our homes and try and work and, you know, equip everyone with laptops against the clock because we didn't have all those resources to hand. But in a strange way over time, it also weirdly brought us closer together and maybe a slightly traumatic experience does that. And even although we, we've learned to both love and hate these digital tools on the positive side, it, it meant that we found ourselves maybe talking and communicating internally more candidly, more openly, disclosing doubt, uncertainty, trying to just be very honest about the challenges that we were facing. So I think it initiated certain kinds of behavioural change, perhaps, within the organisation, which we're still working through. And, and some of them are positive, although, by the way, it is wonderful to be back in the buildings, of course. Mm. But then for our audiences, it was a different kind of picture. We talked about buildings and spaces and geography, but of course, with the best will in the world, we as the British Library can only ever be on the ground in a few places. By dint of the partnerships that you've talked about, and, and for those who don't know, the, the Business and IP Centre is a, is a network, a growing network. We have you know, ultimately about 20 main centres and many, many other more localised ones where we, we offer some of our business support services through local libraries, and that gets us closer to communities. But of course, digital is the other vital part of this. 
And frankly, when COVID hit, wasn't just us, all the public libraries closed their doors, they had to. And instantly, we had to turn our attention to the work which thankfully had been going on for about 20 years previously, by one means or another, to digitise as mm. much as possible of the historic collections of the library. And so we did, although we were using language carefully, but we said BL is open was the hashtag British. The British Library is open on the web in as much as we can be. And I think we were able to shine a spotlight on perhaps, you know, digitized resources that had been taken for granted up to then. And suddenly mm. for, a, for a while, that was the library. I mean, I, I, was, I was reading about some of the work you're doing with Google and I, I wondered, has COVID changed the way you look at a library? I mean, it's it sort of almost some of the things I was reading about, it, it sort of made me think this could almost be like a data business as much as a kind of, you know, learned institution about books. I mean, is there, has this accelerated the, the digitization of the library experience, do you think? Do you know, it's, it's both and. I mean, when we wrote the Living Knowledge strategy long before COVID, well, not that long, five years before COVID, I think almost when we wrote that, we were giving a slight corrective to the view that somehow because online media and digital has been invented, that therefore it's in some sense some one-way street away from the physical experience, the physical book, the physical human encounter mm. towards something that is just through a, a digital screen or a glass screen or a portable device of some kind. And to note even then that we'd noticed that the more, certainly at the British Library, that the more we literally digitised our collections, the larger the crowds seem to be to queue up to get into the building every day and what, wanting to be with each other in a real space. And it was both and. It wasn't, as it were, a substituting out. We were investing in both and both were, were growing. Now, COVID suddenly for a while paused and interrupted the physical side of the story and in that sense, of course, it put a premium on the quality and, and the team did great work. And we, we accelerated some projects to try and get yet more content out there. So the wonderful George III's map collection, we, we popped up onto Flickr and quickly and, and got it going. So we were trying to pump Prime in as much as we could. But it's not a one-way street. Mm. And it's very interesting just walking around. I'm in the London building today and every desk in the public space is occupied. People are here. The gallery is full of visitors at the exhibition. And I think uh, it has both, the COVID has taught everyone what libraries can be in their digital incarnation. But it's also been a brutal reminder of what they also desperately want them to be. Mm. as real-life, civic, safe spaces with real librarians, real service, and, of course, crucially, other real people that you can come together with. And I'm not seeing, far from seeing that ebbing away, I think, actually, it, it's just bit, that, that's something that, that a pandemic brutally suppresses for a while, and it reminds us of its importance. Mm. And I suppose that that that's possibly is how, you know, the sense of understanding and togetherness finds its moment, perhaps in terms of, you know, going through a, a great global shared experience like this. I mean, something I was just thinking as you were speaking is that, I mean, I, I, I have a great cultural and emotional affinity to the physicality of books, but I sort of wonder, you know, you'll be up to your 50th anniversary in a year or so, you know, 50 years hence, will the British Library of the Future be looking back to these curious antiquities, which which happen to be these 500-page books that we all used to sort of sit around reading on buses and the tube and actually say, well, how did they do that? Why did they do that? I mean, <laughs> will it be a completely different institution? 
Well, it's a very, I mean, it's a very reasonable question, Michael. <laughs> and funnily enough, I, long before I came to the BL, I remember pitching an idea about this at the BBC when I was a very young radio producer. That was probably back in the 1980s. Strangely, technological change doesn't always proceed in that linear fashion that sometimes the evangelists at a particular moment would predict. And indeed, we've had to adjust and tag along and, and change strategy to adapt to some extent, to real consumer habits. And, and let's, I mean, physical books is a, is a case in point. It's our job to, to collect the record, the, you know, the, the, the published record, free commercial you know, output of the nation. And for many books, by the way, we have the option under legal deposit to collect physically or digitally, and we can t- take a judgment. Uh, but there's an awful lot of content, by the way, which is just physical. And I would have said probably 10 years ago, 15 years ago, much business planning would have been predicated on what you just said. As I say, just a general shift away. But look at the shape of the actual publishing industry now as a cultural phenomenon. Ebooks are a wonderful invention. And certainly when it comes to, for instance, academic publishing, so our friends at, at School of Advanced Study, University of London, absolutely their research outputs are likely to fundamentally be digital outputs in the mm. future. And that, that really works. And frankly, that works for us because that's a better way to store some of those vast resources of research content. But when it comes to other forms of particularly book or magazine publication or pamphlets, or children's books or whatever, Actually, the human appetite, it would appear to to hold, to own, to borrow, to handle, to be with, has far from melting away. I think what we've seen, you need to check the publisher's industry reports to get the very latest statistics, but we keep an eye on it. And my reading is that that e-books are now an absolutely settled part of the landscape. Yeah. They're probably in many cases for trade publishing running at sort of 25 or so percent of, of the of the blend. Mm. And so if we're going to correctly preserve the record, we are still very much in also the physical preservation business to a degree where we can, where we can, where it's the right thing to do. But I suppose actually, I mean, and a lot of people that will listen to an episode like this will will take out of it the fact that change is happening. It always does happen. It may well be accelerating because of certain factors at the moment. But in terms of advice for those you know people you mentioned like the university of london you know a, a university that that has been around for a good a good period of time in terms of how how institutions deal with these forces of change actually successfully navigate you know what can often be quite choppy waters i, I can imagine certain academics thinking audiobooks would be you know not not their preferred route for disseminating knowledge what is the psychological approach to change and the advice you would give in terms of somebody who's managing change with you know, one of the great British institutions oh, I mean this is something we were talking about with our senior team actually only yesterday is what change feels like and how you manage it emotionally as well as intellectually and, and strategically which it is not a soft or trivial question no. because it, it, it actually the mindset, the emotional spirit with which you confront a sometimes very unsettling and unnerving world can make all the difference between a successful change program and, 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 a, and one that doesn't work. And within that, I mean, a bit like the conversation you and I were just having, for instance, around around books to be very, very responsive to change and to sometimes lead it or be in advance of it 
is not to say that it is the job of every organization, every institution all the time to try and change everything at once. Mm. And in fact, partially true of the BBC to some degree, definitely true of a service like the one we offer. A lot of our judgment all the time is what do we change more slowly? What do we change not at all, in fact? What what are we literally here to preserve and protect? And that's not just books, but certain kinds of continuity of atmosphere, mood, service, protected space. And what are the bits where we need to move a bit faster? And what perhaps are those other elements where actually we need to be running at the speed of the digital industry sector? And it's probably a blend of all of mm. those layers. And, and management and leadership is about the, the sort of getting the handoffs between those different rates of change. How did you um, address that question when you asked what does change feel like? I think it's such a such an interesting way of putting it because, of course, you know, it, it, there is a a hugely emotional reaction to change that we all have as as human beings. How did you address that question with your team? How, what was the answer to your own question, I guess? Well, you won't be surprised to know, but we didn't come up with any definitive answers. That's the point of conversation. But we, without literally sharing, you know, the, the, the whole content of the conversation, it was certainly, you know, quite a large team of leaders talking quite openly about the need for care, self-care, care of each other and our teams and organizations and our users, recognizing a sense of fragility in the world. I've had one or two colleagues in, in really quite senior positions, not just in, in this organization, use the word humility in, in recent months, actually, in the face of, of, of nature, the world, you know, the scale of things that have been sort of unleashed upon us. And so it's certainly a good corrective to the to a certain kind of, of maybe vanity that leaders can sometimes have, that you can always have a decisive grip. And almost the first step to getting things right, perhaps, is acknowledging that and then being a little bit more open at every stage with each other about those questions of what this is feeling like, as well as what literally the practicalities are of what we're trying to achieve. Do you think that as an organisation, I think you described it early on as sort of almost collecting the, the human story, the human record, if you will, does that give additional insight into the world of of today or does it actually just provide endless levels of confusion in terms of trying to in trying to, in terms of trying to get better understanding of the human condition well obviously technically if we could just pause from our day jobs and go down into the reading rooms and read everything that's coming in then we'd obviously know everything michael and it would be exactly. fun and we'd tell we knew this was coming sadly it doesn't quite work that way although by the way there's another whole discussion about how there are new tools with with big data tools ai we are working with our friends at the alan turing institute on actually how you can extract knowledge more rapidly at scale from very, very large data sets. So I'm making like The algorithm will save us. (laughs) Well, it's not, it's to be fair, it's less of an algorithm and more it's literally educating tools to to answer questions. But, you know, the the scholars, the researchers stay in control. But in all seriousness, no, I think we, we, I think, it's not our job as an institution is we, we can't we can't be the researchers to that extent of what's there we're there to enable others to find, yeah, I, come in I, use our resources to find it out but we can make sure we are collecting properly and mm. one thing we did last year was to collect more deeply for instance on the web because we collect the uk web 
to make sure we are we were collecting in detail the decisions that were being made day by day and sometimes hour well, by I was gonna hour. Say, and presumably technology allows you to collect the oral record things that are you know perhaps we've never been able to do before but I suppose the reason why I asked the question is because when I interview historians especially is that they they usually bring a hinterland based on you know the experience of having studied the world at a particular point in time that that I suppose informs their judgment on today and their attitude about the future and I suppose it is the role of running something like the British Library not to draw conclusions because you're just an objective collector of of information and, and data or or does it inevitably I guess evolve your view of things, your sense of things, your feelings about things? It's a really good question. There's a fundamental simplicity about the library idea, which is the first half of your question, which is absolutely, there's no editorialising, particularly, with, by the way, with legal deposit collecting. We just collect whatever it is that society chooses to publish. We look after it, whether it's trivial, serious, popular, obscure. It is there and it is our task to remove barriers to accessing that. And in fact, the really fundamental point you're making about, if you like, the different attitudes and perspectives that, for instance, historians or other researchers come with, is that I do think we clearly have a job to continually diversify the range of people who are enabled to come in and conduct research because that way knowledge truly will grow. It's a domestic version of that point I was making about mutual understanding at the global uh, level. There is, just as a final corrective to that answer, though, of course, A, it's an institution run by human beings in the here and now. We do make choices then at the margins of the collection about other things to acquire. They might be value judgments about which interesting, which archive might be interesting for people in the future. Some of those, that, that second guessing of the future I was talking about, of course, has to take place. And some of our curators do that. And of course, then sometimes we'll put on exhibitions or displays where cheerfully but very transparently, we're becoming storytellers for the season. Yes, so I mean, the, I, was, so, you know, I, I, I was so thinking storytellers, and I was thinking about your role at the BBC, and then I was thinking, actually, how do you narrate the story of today versus yesterday, the ever more diverse vo- voices that make up that story, so you have to search harder. Another thing I was thinking about, the, the, the issue of time. I mean, I, I think you took over in, in 2012, um, possibly the last year where you would say the UK felt really good about things you know with the olympics and various sorts of you know things that felt very different to the world as we head into 2022 we're we're sort of you know towards the back end of this interview and i suppose in terms of how you feel about the future for the british library with all of the uncertainty that surrounds it in the world in which we we now live is it a better decade to head into to to run an institution like like the British Library than the one you've just had, do you think? I think I'm optimistic enough to think that it that it will be in some ways. It, I mean, if only because I think there will be a renewed sense of urgency around the importance of institutions like this nationally, locally, globally, because I think we now know what I think we were only guessing at. I don't think we should we should do a kind of golden age view of twenty. 12 or 2002 or anything really i mean every every era has its complexities let's face it but but undoubtedly back if back then we were thinking that the internet revolution might have downsides as well as upsides in terms of gathering of wisdom and knowledge and mutual understanding i think we know 
of course, that can breed confusion or division and misinformation and Mm. so on. And so I think there is actually pleasingly cross-party right across the, the piece and probably to some degree, I hope, internationally, an understanding that in a context like that, the values of uh, uh, that libraries have held for a very, very long time of actually collecting information responsibly, thoughtfully, presenting it on equality, being non-judgmental, but, but constantly paying attention to accuracy, authenticity, attribution, and so on, become almost quite radical things to hold on to and protect. Mm. Uh, and so in that sense, I think we probably, we're not changing that mission that we wrote at all because it's a good mission, but it perhaps takes on an added importance. And, and that's one of the reasons actually we want to make sure that more and more people around the UK have access to it. And, and I was thinking, you know, as, as you were speaking, is the importance of not editorialising the past. But I mean, it did, it did strike me, though, in terms of just thinking about that, that year, 2012. I mean, I, I, I co a book called Mission in, in 2015, where we looked mm. at the rise of the kind of the big, the big internet businesses, the big social media, digital businesses. And of course, there was almost a sense of breathlessness at, the, at that point in terms of just how much the world was going to be fashioned in their images, you know, sort of water, uh, sorry, transport was reliable as running water or belong anywhere or all these sort of like, I guess, mission statements of those emerging titans of the time. Of course, as time has shown, quite a few fallen angels along the way, but it does strike me that the eras do capture zeitgeist. And I suppose the British Library must be full of the freeways and the cul-de-sacs of that uh, of that experience. <laughs> uh, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, one of the um, one of the joys of the library is that we record everything. We record the failures, we record the false starts, we record the horrors, as well as the masterpieces and 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 the joys. And I think that's. Uh, honestly, when you, you talk about mood state and, and, and emotions, one of the, the just the daily pleasures of, of the job of the institution is that sense you go around the reading rooms and the range of the, what people are studying, what people, the, the questions people are choosing to ask of that historic record is just always inspiring. Oh, absolutely wonderful. Roby Keating, thank you so much for joining me on Changemakers. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Changemakers is brought to you by the campaign's firm Seven Hills and presented by me, Michael Heyman. Pure Being is the name of our soundtrack and it's written and performed by the brilliant BT Wolf. To find out more, head over to changemakers.works and if you like what you hear, why not give us a rating? I think this could be-